This is a Federal News Network podcast. After a rash of high-profile cyber attacks earlier this year, the Biden administration launched a full-court press to reform federal cybersecurity. Congress is also considering some new cyber requirements for private companies. During a hearing yesterday, the Senate Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs Committee got the chance to press senior administration officials on the actions they're taking right now to defend U.S. networks. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday attended that hearing. He joins me now. Justin, let's start with the fact that both chambers of Congress are on this beat right now, advancing cyber incident reporting legislation. What did they say about that? Yeah, that was a big focus of yesterday's hearing. And, you know, these cyber incident reporting requirements would be among the, the most significant new requirements for industry in a while on the cybersecurity front. There are several bills out there. And uh, Senate Homeland Security Committee Chairman Gary Peters and Ranking Member Rob Portman are advancing one of those that focuses on critical infrastructure operators would require them to report significant cyber incidents to the Cybersecurity Infrastructure Security Agency. So there are a number of questions about how this will ultimately work. And one is enforcement. What do you do if a company doesn't comply? So CISA Director Jen Easterly was testifying yesterday, and she discussed why she thinks one idea that's been out there using the subpoena authority might not be the best enforcement mechanism. I know some of the language talks about a subpoena, Authority. Uh, my personal view is that is not an agile uh, enough mechanism to allow us to get the information that we need to share it as rapidly as possible to prevent other uh, potential victims from threat actors. So I think that we should look at fines. Fines are obviously used across industries. I just came from four and a half years in the financial services sector uh, where fines are a mechanism that ema- enable compliance and enforcement. I realize this is a complicated issue, and I really look forward to working through it with you because I think it is important that we are able to get the information that we need in a timely way. That was CISA Director Jen Easterly at yesterday's Senate Homeland Security Committee hearing talking about cyber incident reporting. Also on that front, she said, ideally, cyber incidents would be reported within 24 hours. Uh, The Peters-Portman bill includes a 72-hour timeline at a minimum for companies to report cyber incidents. That's in line with what industry associations have been pushing for. They want more flexible reporting timelines. Easterly also said there should be broad-based reporting. It shouldn't be limited to any specific type of cyber incident or sector. Industry is saying there needs to be some specificity there, uh, that there needs to be very specific reporting criteria for what qualifies as a cyber incident, and it shouldn't be too broad. So you're kind of seeing a little bit of daylight between what industry is pushing for and perhaps what government wants. But overall, there's pretty broad support for getting this cyber incident reporting legislation across the finish line, especially from from CISA itself. All right. Sounds like Congress and the government are getting pretty prescriptive in their details that they want from industry. What else is Congress thinking about these days on cyber? They're looking at some reform legislation that would update the Federal Information Security Modernization Act of 2014. They want to clarify the, the roles and responsibilities that exists within federal government for cybersecurity purposes. CISA was just established as its own independent agency about three years ago. And so for Jen Easterly, she said her big priorities in any sort of reform legislation would be first and foremost, codifying CISA's role as the civilian cyber lead in the government for any sort of cybersecurity issues operationalized. She would also want the reform legislation to hold agencies accountable 
for investing in cyber staff and protections. That's been a big recurring issue over the years where agencies just don't invest enough in cyber because it's not necessarily a big core part of their their missions. And then she would want to create a cyber compliance model that just goes beyond what she described as box checking. So testifying alongside Easterly, though, you had National Cyber Director Chris English and Federal Chief Information Security Officer Chris Darusha, and there's still a lot of questions about their roles. You had three different cyber officials there uh, testifying in front of that panel, and lawmakers were wondering, well, who's exactly responsible for what right now? So Chris Inglis, his his office is relatively new. He just was confirmed as the first national cyber director this past summer. He said the president may issue a directive in the coming months clarifying that cyber oversight and accountability across government. And here's an interesting bit, how, how he described how his office works with the Office of Management and Budget on cyber budgets. Take the Technology Modernization Fund in hand. There's a billion dollars allocated by the Congress for that purpose. There's $2.3 billion in applications. Uh, OMB, using its authority, has um, described what the requirements are that, that would allow them to judge the merits of any particular application. They've impaneled a board. Um, I have looked at those requirements. I have judged that the panel is an appropriate panel to adjudicate this. And I look at each of the applications and each of the awards to ensure that they're consistent with our overall cyber strategy. I therefore am in a place where I am performing my responsibility to ensure performance at the same time allowing OMB to perform their statutory responsibility to be accountable for the budget. I think that's by statute where we are. Um, We could possibly clarify that to a greater degree in the FISMA modernization and other bills, but, but the things that I think that we're enjoying at the moment, we can achieve coherence with the roles as they are defined. That's National Cyber Director Chris Inglis talking at yesterday's Senate Homeland Security Committee hearing. And what's the latest that came out of that hearing with respect to how agencies are implementing that May cyber executive order that was so many words, so much prescription, so many deadlines? There are a lot of deadlines. CISA actually has 35 deadlines laid out in that cyber executive order. Jen Easterly said the agency has met all of their due dates so far, and and she's hoping that will continue. That includes defining critical software and defining the security requirements for critical software that agencies need to use going forward. But now the rubber might start hitting the road in terms of actual guidance and regulation. Chris Darusha said that OMB and the Department of Homeland Security are actually working on recommendations for new contract clauses that will address how the government and industry work together to address cyber threats. Uh, That includes streamlining sharing of threat intelligence information and notification of incidents. Uh, As we discussed before, there's some legislation on that front. OMB and DHS are also working on some new contract clauses on cyber incident reporting notifications. And Darusha also said that OMB will soon release some new guidance around supply chain security. There's still a lot of concern about how agencies are addressing their supply chains, whether they're even aware of what's in their supply chain for software and and other uh, IT items. So look out for that in the coming future. All right. Look out for those software bills of material coming, the S-bomb coming to bomb agencies. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. Check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I am your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Vice Admiral Cutler Dawson. Cutler has had an incredible career serving 
our country for 35 years in the Navy, where he attained the rank of Vice Admiral. During his service, he had numerous assignments afloat and ashore, including Commander, Second Fleet, Striking Fleet Atlantic, and in Washington at the Pentagon and on Capitol Hill, where he was the Navy's Chief of Legislative Affairs. Immediately following his retirement from active duty in 2004, he became the president and CEO of Navy Federal Credit Union, the world's largest credit union, where he served for 14 years. Under his leadership, Navy Federal grew from 2 million to 8 million members. Phenomenal. Cutler, welcome and thanks for joining me. Thank you, Shane. You've had a fascinating career across both military and the private sector. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and your professional journey? Well, I started out at the Naval Academy where I graduated in 1970. And then, as you mentioned, spent 35 years in the Navy um, with uh, six actual actual uh, afloat commands. Uh, the first one was when I was 27 years old. Uh, I didn't know enough to be scared of anything. And it was uh, probably one of the highlights of my career. Uh, and then after I retired, after 35 years, I went to uh, work at Navy Federal Credit Union as the CEO, where I spent my next 14 years. Um, I'm, I'm currently retired and enjoying life. And um, it's been a great run for me. How would you describe your leadership style? And how's that developed over the years? My style has been quite con- consistent. Um, I believe, and I've learned this in the Navy, that you have to go to the deck plates uh, to see what is going on. And you have to learn what your people do and how they do it so you can help them to be better at it and more efficient and more productive. Um, it's um, something that you need to do all the time. Um, I remember I used to tell folks that um, you don't want to retreat to your cabin and what I mean by that is um, the longer you're in a position, the less you think you have to get out and about. But that should be the opposite. You should get out and about more because people change, situations change, and you've got to figure out a way to get to them and find out what they're doing and where, what you can do to help them. Uh, I. We'll talk a little bit more about your book, but I read it um, from sea to the C-suite. Fantastic read. You talk about the deck plates in that um, as well. I would encourage everyone to get a copy of this and read some more detail about going to the deck plates. Cutler, who was the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? I had numerous while I was in the Navy, but uh, the quality that, that I enjoyed the most was the leaders that got to know me as an individual and that they cared about me. And I could tell that they cared about me. And they were not only my leaders, but they were my mentors. And um, I remember um, one particular one, Bill Schiffer, when I had my first assignment at the Pentagon, um, I would go in to see him with my problem of the day. And I knew that he had numerous problems of his own, but he would stop and he would focus on me and he would make me feel like I was the most important person in his world. Um, and I, I tried to do that um, throughout my career. But really, it's about caring for your people. Cutler, in reading your book, there was a quote you used that you used to inspire those people that work for you. And it really got my attention. And it was, it was you are the captain of your own ship. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what that means and 
how it was useful to you and the leaders you were developing. Um, absolutely. Um, what I mean by captain of your own ship, when you are the captain of a ship, sometimes you're in the middle of the ocean and you don't have anybody to turn to to make decisions. You don't have anybody to turn to ask, what should I do now? You have to be the captain of that ship. And I, I translated that um, into, let's say, Navy Federal's organization, where I would tell branch managers that I said, you are the captain of the ships of Navy Federal. You're the ones that are facing the, the members or customers, as others call them, every day. And you have to make decisions without a lot of guidance, in some cases, and without a lot of time. So be the captain of your own ship. Step up, uh, make decisions, uh, do what you think is right, and you never can go wrong. I think that is so important. And you have to give your people a little bit of latitude to take some risk as well, because there is risk for them in doing that and risk to your organization. That's right. And and I mentioned that I took command of my first ship uh, with five years in the Navy, and I was 27 years old. Well, my boss had 32 years in the Navy, and um, his his guidance to me when I first met him was, Cutler, you do the right thing, and I'll back you up all the way. What a wonderful way to, to spend an assignment with, uh, with backup and, and guidance like that. What, what great, great advice. Uh, it's clear leadership is a topic you're passionate about. You wrote the book we mentioned before, um, From C to C-Suite. Can you tell us a little bit about that project? Yes. When I was at Navy Federal, I would tell C-Stories. Uh, as parables to get my point across. And um, folks would tell me, Cutler, we like your stories. It gives us a picture of what you're trying to tell us. Now, what else are they going to say? They work for me, but uh, uh, I took it as a compliment, and it was. And my wife encouraged me to write a book, and I needed a co-author to help me. And I found a lady named Taylor Keelan, who was the perfect, perfect co-author. She turned in my stories into wonderful chapters um, that I'm very proud of. Where can listeners find a copy? Well, you can get it on Amazon, uh, and you can also uh, get it on the Naval Institute website. Uh, And I might add that um, any proceeds from the book, Navy Federal uses uh, to give to charity. Fantastic. Cutler, thank you very much. Really enjoyed your time and your lessons in, in leadership and sharing with us your life story. And, and uh, I've learned a lot both from talking to you today and reading your book. And thank you very much for your time. It's my pleasure. And I, I, I would like to add one thing if I could, Shane. Um, during my assignments in Washington, D.C., I gained the utmost respect for the civilians that work here every day. They're hardworking, they're dedicated, and they, they have my eternal gratitude. Uh, I got to come and go from the Pentagon. They stayed every day and worked in Washington when I got to go out and um, enjoy being at sea. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah, we, WEPA serves civilian federal employees, but your comment is well taken because the interaction between the two is is continuous, it's nonstop, and it's critical. So uh, the career civil servants, as well as career military, uh, our country would not be where it is today without them. I totally agree. And and I can tell you from the U.S. Navy standpoint, uh, we couldn't operate like we do without them being the backbone of what we do. 
Thank you very much for your time today, Cutler, and to everyone listening to Lessons in Leadership podcast. We'll see you next time. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you're sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.